Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Last summer, a pastor at Lorne Park Baptist Church in Toronto delivered a sermon to her congregants that would change her life. In the months that followed, she was interviewed by the New York Times, Fox, the CBC, and her story was picked up by news outlets across the world because the sermon that she gave that day cost her her job. Her name is June Joplin, and I'm very happy to say that she is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Pastor June, thank you so much for for joining me. 2020 has been, I think, for everybody on Earth, um, a remarkable year. It's been especially remarkable, though, for for you. This past summer, you came out to your congregation um, in in the month of June. Is that was that deliberate? There, there wasn't anything especially premeditated about it. I, I I have said before, I'm not much of a planner. I don't really believe in planning. I believe in. <laughs> resourceful and adaptive and flexible. And it just, you know, based on what was going on in the life of the church um, and where we might hit like a um, a low point in terms of activity. And yeah. uh, I thought, you know, okay, this this would fit then. And, you know, it, it the other things like it being Pride Month and my name being June, like all that stuff was just coincidence. Um, but it was a nice, happy coincidence. So for those people who don't know the story, where were you? What was your role? And and can you just sort of explain what the situation was and then also kind of what the outcome of that situation was? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I uh, have been a pastor um, in one Baptist church or another for um, full time since 2007, so 13 years. And uh, I got my first like paying job at a Baptist church in 1998 or so when I was about 19 years old as a youth pastor. So it's been something I've spent a lot of my life doing. I, I had this sense from like five, six, seven years old and, and really like growing in intensity, like around 11 or 12, that I really, really wanted to be a girl. Um, I didn't know that that meant that I was transgender. I didn't know what transgender meant. Um, it wasn't something I was really allowed to verbalize or that I could have understood given the context where I grew up. So, you know, I spent about 39 years or so right up until like 2018, just convinced that I was uh, a cisgender man who sometimes got really unhappy because he felt like he ought to be a woman. Um, and I just thought, you know, that's all it is. I'm, I'm not trans. I'm just they have this weird, I don't know, quirk. And uh, as I learned more and more about what it meant to be transgender, um, and, and especially as here in Canada where I live, um, mm-hmm. folks started to 
I guess, want volunteers to understand how not to discriminate, how to make space for trans youth. It was actually, that, that's how I learned. Like I, I was volunteering with my oldest hockey team and had to take a, like a webinar on how not to discriminate against <laughs> uh, kids based on like gender presentation or gender identity. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's a very like kind of basic suburban Canadian uh, story. Yeah, yeah. I, I started to think, oh my goodness, like, what if some of the darkness, some of the depression, some of the fog that I've been living with since I was, you know, in like ninth or 10th grade and has caught up with me periodically, what if that's gender dysphoria? Mm. One of the frustrating things or one of the things that makes gender dysphoria hard to pinpoint is that it, it the symptoms can mimic so many other things. I mean, you, you know, you talk to a lot of teenagers like, well, are you do you feel like you fit in? And a lot of us might say, well, no, not really. Or um, do you feel like you're living the life that you're supposed to be living? Oh, maybe not. Or, you know, sometimes it looks like depression. Sometimes yeah. it, it can look like a lot of things. And, yeah. and you don't always correlate that, you know, gosh, I wish I was a girl to, wow, some days I just don't want to get out of bed or do anything. Um, I, I had no idea those two were related, but I guess I figured it out in my late thirties and realized that, you know what, I got to stop pretending like this doesn't exist. At that point, you know, I had been pastor at this church in Mississauga outside Toronto for, I don't know, five years or so. And I, I realized just based on what I knew about Baptists by and large, like they're not really, there, there are some notable exceptions, but for the most part, Baptists aren't especially welcoming and affirming of LGBTQ plus people. Um, and uh, there, I, I kind of knew that, well, what I've got here is something that, A, I can't ignore mm -hmm. without like really destroying my mental health and my physical health. But B, is probably going to um, really harm my career. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? How do I, how do I get to a place where I can actually be? who I'm supposed to be and, and tell the truth about that. Um, I spent, uh, I don't know, a year or two going to therapy, uh, talking to my doctor, getting practice with like gender presentation, a lot of things that like um, cisgender girls get to learn how to do when they're, when they're teenagers or, um, you know, in young adulthood, um, kind of building a wardrobe, doing other little things. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, just very practical stuff. And it's just like, I don't plan. Right. I, just, I just said, well, you know, realistically, I think I could be ready to come out in maybe 18 months to two years and um, saw a good opening on the calendar and said, okay, if that's, if that's when it's going to happen, then I can work with that. And started to make friends within uh, the trans community, started to come out to friends um, and build a network of support. And uh, that all kind of um led me to june when i when i came out i i wonder if one of the things that i've been really sort of in the back of my mind when i read your story is um a sort of a stereotype that americans have about canada and 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 canada being the sort of shangri-la of everybody loves everybody else and are super nice and welcoming of everybody and i, I wonder if the if there was ever like that in the back of your mind or as well, if um, the fact that 
your experience took place in Canada helped kind of grab people's attention? Because I think a lot of places in America, they'd be like, oh yeah, well, I expect that sort of thing to happen in America. But like, it's Canada and we have this sort of, Americans have this sense that everybody's nice in Canada to everybody and nothing like, it's just perfect there. Yeah. One of my friends, well, actually I have a couple of friends that are, that are in politics and, and, you know, they've done a lot of good work around gender equality and, you know, they've just been shaking their heads. Like we thought that this was the kind of thing that couldn't happen here. Um, and it, you know, there is some question uh, there was in 2017, um, uh, legislation passed that is colloquially called, um, the trans bill of rights here in Canada. And, uh, I don't, I don't know everything that's in there, but I kind of know a lot of it, or I understand, I think a lot of it. And it's things like you can't get fired for being trans. Your your employer can't ask if you're trans. Uh, you do not have to tell your employer that you're trans. Um, um, you uh, you get to use the washroom that's associated with your your authentic gender, your gender identity. Um, you, you know, some of it relates to like change rooms and, and schools and stuff like that. And it's a lot of the stuff that's really in the states. There are some there's some places where those those protections exist. And, 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 you know, actually, coincidentally, the day after I came out, the Supreme Court ruled on um, uh, Amy Stevens's case. Um, right. But that it seems that trans people have more robust protections here in Canada. Now, it doesn't mean that trans people have a, just a easy go. I think it's probably a little easier than a lot of places in the States. In fact, it's probably a lot easier. So the non-discrimination helps um, like healthcare, um, which covers a lot of transition related healthcare. But I I, I guess the question is, and this is still one of those things that's kind of up in the air is how do those kind of universal individual rights inter, uh, you know, intersect with religious rights and in the States, I mean, especially now, you know, given the way the Supreme court might go, you know, it's very likely if you just say, well, it's because of God, you can do anything you want and, yeah. and infringe on anybody's rights and deny anybody's rights and kind of just do whatever. Um, but I think the United States is um, unfortunately an anomaly in that interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're a Hobby Lobby and you want to give your um, employees access to, you know, contraceptives or birth control because of your, your convictions. Well, I'm okay. You can do that. Of course, here in Canada, they would say, no, of course not. Are you stupid? Um, so the question is like, what, what happens next? And I really don't know. Mercifully, I guess I don't have to make any big decisions about what I do next in terms of like my, um, I guess dealings with my former church, um, right away, but I've been thinking of options and, and we'll see story might might not be over can we can we rewind a little bit in your life because um from what i can tell there was something of an overlap between at a very young age your feeling of identifying or wanting to be a girl um and just sort of having that in the back of your mind uh combined with it seems that from a very early age you had this desire to be a pastor yeah, and and at some point was as you were as you were growing into adulthood, 
um, with those two tracks and that those two trains going down, going down those two tracks, right? At some point in the back of your mind, did you did you kind of know this was coming? I mean, I know I, you, obviously consciously you didn't, but that that this collision was going to be was was on the horizon. I, I really didn't. Um, I so much, uh, you, you know, the the. Um, the societal pressures, forces, however you want to describe them, trying to prevent trans people from becoming self-acceptance, uh, accepting and transition are so powerful. And mm-hmm. uh, especially those of us who are assigned male at birth and transition to life as a woman, like, you know, one of the worst, one of the worst insults that you can give a man in our, you know, patriarchal mis- uh, misogynistic society is that, that he is doing something womanly. You know, you throw like a girl, don't cry. You look like a little girl, you know, like all your, all, all my football coach had to say that one horrible year that I played football was just, you know, you know, um, all he had to do was call us ladies. And that was like the biggest insult you could get. So, you, um, it, all of that, um, and, and just a whole host of other things um, conspire to make it so it's almost a miracle that any of us ever become self-accepting. It's getting easier, but I mean, it's funny how the milestones that pointed me towards um, ministry coincided with the sense that I was I was supposed to be a female. Um, I, I have described it as, if you can imagine like standing in front of a dam and there being two big holes uh, big enough for you to plug with your hand, but they're just far enough apart that you can't plug them both. So you have to make the decision. Um, which of these am I going to attend to? Which of these like wounds, essentially, am I going to um, nurse? And I came recently, I guess, once I become self-accepting to re- recognize that, you know, like this, I may be in a situation where two of the primary parts of my identity um, that I'm supposed to be a minister and that I'm supposed to be a woman are, aren't things that I can do at the same time. Maybe there's no way to reconcile them. So, um, you know, here I've spent since I was 11 years old, really trying to become a minister and really trying to ignore the impulse that I was, um, a woman. Mm -hmm. And so now like, it didn't go away. It didn't. Get, it wasn't a phase. It wasn't a you know this weird personality quirk. It's legitimately part of who I am, and um, so I have to tend to that. And unfortunately, it may mean the loss of my vocation. So you just pull your hand off one hole and go plug the other, and you know there's still there's still a leak. There's still kind of a lack of completeness. Well, when I was eleven, I think I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> Most people don't make those decisions when they're 11 years old. I, what drove you to that certainty that you wanted to be um, a minister or a pastor? Well, you know, like I grew up in a context where church was just the center of life. I, mm-hmm. I, went this, I went to this little church in my hometown that was Baptist. They were uh, self-described and proud of being fundamentalist. Um, there was a, uh, we had uh, worship services on Sunday morning and Sunday night. So we were there twice on Sundays. And then they had a private Christian school and I went to school there. So I was there five days, five weekdays a week and twice on Sundays. And it really was the center of my life. Uh, learned about ministers, learned about missionaries, was, you know, just constantly, um, it was just the biggest part of my life. So it kind of made sense. And 
when I was 11 years old, again, about the same time that I, I began to really like persistently and, and, and intensely sense that I was supposed to be a woman, um, I, I joined the youth group at my church. And um, I, don't, I don't know if that sense of like gender incongruity had anything to do with it or just, you know, it's, it's just kind of a common experience at that age. Um, that you just feel like such an outsider. You just feel so profoundly weird and awkward. And um, my youth minister, um, when I wasn't able to really make other friends in the youth group, you know, saw me and and spent time with me and made me feel like I mattered. Hmm. And uh, I just remember feeling the sense that, you know what, like I want to do that for people. Um, If I can make people feel like they count, like they are loved, like they are not outsiders. Boy, what a wonderful way to spend your life that would be. I, I, I came home from summer camp um, sometime in 1990 or 1991. Um, you know, I knew two things pretty certainly, one that I was supposed to be a pastor and one that I was supposed to be a girl. And I knew that okay, I can tell my church one of these things. I can tell my family one of these things. Um, but the other, no, I have to hide it, I have to repress it because it's, you know, it's wrong. It's fundamentally messed up. And so just tell them you want to be a minister. And um, I got lots and lots of affirmation and opportunities. And I got to preach uh, like on a Sunday night, like on, on like youth Sunday night, like I got to preach a sermon when I was maybe 11 or 12. And um <laughs> So, yeah, I've just kind of been stubbornly chasing that sense of vocation ever since. Why did you stay in the Baptist church then? Because as you as you point out, I mean, the Baptist church doesn't have the greatest track record of um, inclusivity. It, it tends to veer towards the fundamentalist, um, rigid, yeah. conservative side. So, so why stay with the Baptist and not enter into any of these other uh, countless kind of more progressive churches? Um. You know, just by coincidence, and I would say like it was a it was a providential or fortuitous thing. I I, I discovered that there were other ways to be Baptist, and there are. You know, um, the the thing about Baptists is they're every Baptist congregation or group of Baptists is totally independent and free to be as liberal or as conservative, as fundamentalist or progressive, you know, um, as they want to be. So as I as I got older, I started connecting with Baptist congregations that were more progressive. You know, first it was a church that um, maybe would have women as deacons, and then it was a church that would ordain women and have women on the pastoral staff, and then it was a church that you know might have been welcoming and affirming of LGBTQ people. Um, mm-hmm. I discovered that you know what, there the Baptist. Uh, family is is bigger than I thought. And I, I, I think at our roots, that freedom that says, look, you know, you, you, your conscience um, is free um, to advocate for whatever issue that you feel led to, to um, call whomever you feel that the spirit is leading to be your pastor. I mean, you know, here in Canada, I think Baptist ordained uh, a woman for the first time in like 1907. And that's, that's before a lot of denominations were willing to do that. And, you know, when, when as one of the first trans women clergy was a woman named Nancy Ladan, uh, who was a Roman Catholic priest and transitioned around 1979. 
Oof. Wow. Then, yeah, I know. Crazy. Um, what, what, um, uh, I just, it's, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> she of course was never able to serve as a Roman Catholic priest again, but when she landed in another church, you know, another 10 or 11 years later, um, she helped out at a Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so, I mean, we have those things in our track record, you know, one of the first really high profile, um, ordinations and, and pastoral appointments of a trans woman happened at Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. in 2014 with Allison Robinson. Um, so, I mean, th there are ways to be Baptist that are not fundamentalist. Um, I, I think that, that those of us who are like that are kind of in the minority. And uh, especially for clergy, there's probably more progressive Baptist clergy than there are progressive Baptist congregations. So it can be kind of hard wow. to find your home. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think now um, I'm, I'm kind of a, if I were to go back into church work, um, I think the chances of me landing in another Baptist church would be slim. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of preaching, guest preaching at Baptist churches, a couple even here in Canada. But right. in terms of like landing a gainful pastor job, um, I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, and, you know, honestly, and, you know, good, good for Baptists in the States. Like I've probably got a better chance of becoming a Baptist pastor in the United States than I do in Canada. But I don't know that at this point in my life and at this point, like in the history of the American experiment, I'm, I'm willing to move back to the United States. Yeah, I, I don't blame you, um, <laughs> especially right now. I mean, uh, it's obviously a you alluded to the Supreme Court earlier. It's obviously a time of great anxiety. I, it's been a really rough few days. And in fact, I... I'd reached out to you before last Friday and uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And, um, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I was really grateful for that timing as it turned out, because uh, no. you're exactly the sort of person that, you know, I, I feel like people need to hear from, I need to hear from right now. And uh, so I, I have a couple of kind of on, on that front, a couple of um, kind of theological slash kind of policy questions for you. And, and one is, is that, you know, in doing in doing some um, research on you and some of the um, response to what you've gotten since since this past summer, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the people who sort of claim that it's not possible to be a pastor and be trans, or or possible to be a pastor and be and be gay, and and that they have this theological authority to say so. Um, coming from from a, a sort of academic perspective, uh, you know, I, I know perfectly well that one of Christianity's greatest faults is also one of the things that sort of made it enduring, which is that it 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 doesn't. It's it's kind of a mishmash of a lot of different ideas. There's a lot of different Christianities, and, and that's that's been true since 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 day one. For the last couple of decades, LGBTQ plus Christians have been on the defensive, um, saying. Look, there's really nothing in the Bible that justifies that kind of discrimination. Yeah. But I wonder if there's if if you have any thoughts about going on the offensive, a way of creating a Christianity that affirms those differences, affirms, you know, 
people of all of all stripes in in a much more wholesome way. Well, yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, you, you know, the good news is I don't the onus to create that church is not all on me. I mean, it it, it is. Right. <laughs> you know, the Metropolitan Community Church, for example, is like 50 years old as a denomination or 40 years old. And the Metropolitan Community Church here in Toronto, that's a really vibrant church. And like the, the language they use in worship is like almost evangelical. That's what I like so much about it. Like it's not the type of like mainline church that's kind of like, well, you know, Jesus is good and take him or leave him. We don't really care. It's it, it's um and, and I mean, that's probably an unfair characterization of a lot of mainline churches, but like they really want people to like, they, they really want to grow. They really want to be vibrant in a way that um, is just refreshing to me. And like, I want to be a part of it. And, you know, if, I, I guess if I were going to say like, that's the church I kind of go to, like nobody really goes to church right now, but like, you know, YouTube every Sunday morning. Um, uh, I try to tune in there. And I mean, that's part of a denomination that's existed for half a century. Um, there's been, you know, there have been so many brilliant theologians and uh, scholars of scripture and um, ministers who have made such powerful cases, either through their like academic work, their writing, or just their their lives, their witness for it the inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in the church. You know, some days I think, well, gosh, why are people paying that much attention to me? I'm not even, there's something like 300 trans clergy in North America. Um, I talked to um, Megan Rohr and they were like one of the first trans people ordained um, in the Lutheran tradition in in the States. And um, I think a lot of people saw them. They were on an episode of Queer Eye um, Mm -hmm. a, a little while ago, and they have a really great public profile. And, um, when they reached out to me, they told me, yeah, there's something like 300 of us. Um, so I'm not really an anomaly, kind of rare, but we're out there. And so like the, the work that a lot of people, the people that are out there already are doing, like writing, preaching, leading churches, um, advocating for social change. I mean, I think it stands on its own to the point that I don't feel as much pressure these days to say, well, actually, you know, when you when you take this word from the scripture and you, you apply it to our contemporary context, what you see is that, you know, our condemnation of LGBTQ people is not, you know, I think that's, I think that's good work. That's kind of apologetics work, which I guess has a place, but it, it, it seems less and less relevant. It, it kind of doesn't matter where you live now. You can go to a queer affirming church. I'm from Caldwell County, North Carolina. I don't think there is a church in Caldwell County that is not fundamentalist. There might be one or two, but my my aunt and her wife, um, who are a same-sex couple, um, go to church out near Hickory, North Carolina at a church that started upstairs of the gay bar in Hickory, North Carolina, which I had no idea even existed when I was a little kid. If you told me there was a gay bar in Hickory, I would have just been like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> but it's there. And so, like, people drive – their pastor's a wonderful guy. Um, people drive from, like, 45 minutes away, which isn't so bad on a Sunday morning when you're and, – and so, like, there's a place you can go. You don't have to – you don't have to put up with that that person who's going to stand in the pulpit and lie to you about – the Bible and lie to you about faith and lie to you about whether or not it's okay to be 
LGBTQ plus. Um, there are places you can go. And yeah, I do think there is kind of like, I mean, it, it sort of grieves me to say, but it is kind of like there are two Christianities. The, the, uh, Al Mohler has talked about me a couple of times on his radio show, and I don't, I don't listen to his show, but I've, I found out that he's talked about me a couple of times, which is, I don't know what to think about that. <laughs> Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I think he was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the two things he said, which I really agree with, are one, this is what happens when you ordain women. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if you're going to say the spirit moves in such a way that women can be ordained, in spite of the fact that there are passages that taken wrongly seem to forbid women from being ordained. If you're going to say, you know, we misinterpreted the Bible on women, just like we said, you know, 75 years earlier, we misinterpreted the Bible on slavery. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you come to the point where you say, you know what, I think we misinterpreted the Bible on this thing, on LGBTQ folks. And um, and so, yeah, that's one thing that I kind of agree with them about. Yeah, if you ordain women, you really have no business saying no to LGBTQ plus people because it's ridiculous to say, well, we were wrong about this part of scripture, but we're absolutely right about this one. Um, and then the other thing we said was, you know, it's becoming increasingly evident that we are two kind of fundamentally different Christianities. And yeah, it kind of breaks my heart to say that, but I, I, I don't think there's a lot of core theological conviction that, that unites us. Um, I, I just sort of think they have a fetish for Jesus and, and <laughs> they let him sort of become the justification for, yeah. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that within days of talking about me and, and, and saying, you know, that I'm, bringing some kind of horrible revolution to the Canadian church. Al Mohler made a video urging Baptists to vote for Trump. I mean, it's all kind of the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, folks at my old church said, well, we don't want to make this a two-sided issue. Well, I got news for you. It's a two-sided issue. And yeah. you need to, you need to look really closely at the people who are on your side and whether those are the folks that you're comfortable allying yourself with. You know, I, I, I would say, like, one of the things that I think is kind of um, reassuring or kind of comforting about what you what you just said uh, is that, again, this is this is the story of Christianity. Like, there there has yeah. not been, and even if you go back to, you know, even if you take at face value the 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 narrative of Jesus's life in the Gospels, right? This is a guy who is throwing out or or objecting to the the uh, interpretation of Scripture of his own yeah. religion. Um, there has never been a time since then that that Christians have all agreed on one thing. Um, yeah. It is it is a religion that is constantly uh, reinventing itself and constantly in conflict with itself. And you know, I think that that's one of its honestly greatest attributes. It's one of its real points of staying power is that it's yeah. it's this kind of living this kind of living religion. I, I preached a sermon um, back in the winter, spring earlier in the year. Um, I think it was one of the last sermons I preached like in person. And it was about Luke chapter four, which is, you know, Jesus goes and preaches at the synagogue in his hometown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he reads from, I think it's Isaiah 62. I have to look that up, but it's one of the, it's, it, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And of course it doesn't say 62 on his scroll, but that's <laughs> right. Um, and he stops reading right before Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God. 
So Jesus stops with the line, and I'm here to proclaim God's favor. Isaiah keeps talking, saying, also God's vengeance. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to roll up the scroll and hand it back to the attendant because that's all these people need to hear right now. So like Jesus is like what he's doing there is he's cherry picking scripture. Right. Like, you know, some, some ne'er do well, we'll say just to clean it up a little bit. Um, <laughs> quote, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 22. That's basically people use there's a, there's a verse that's like women shouldn't wear men's clothes and men shouldn't wear women's clothes. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, they quote that as if like, okay, two or three verses down, it says, if if you find your bride is not a virgin on the day of your wedding, you can stone her to death. Right. And a couple of verses further down, it says, when you build a house, you must build a parapet around the roof. And, I, you know, I always, I, I look around my neighborhood and there's all these houses. And I bet some of these people are Christians and they don't have parapets on their roof. No parapets. No parapets. <laughs> And, and God, God hates pitched roofs. And no, <laughs> but but just to say, you know, here we're gonna we're gonna lift that one verse out and not take right. all. Of it. You know, sometimes folks. I mean, we all do that. And, yeah. and the fact is, like the way we do that paints a picture of the God we believe in. The picture of the God that Jesus believed in was the God that said, "You're beloved. I I, I find favor in you." And and where the the, the tone shifted to God's vengeance. Mm-hmm. Jesus just said, you know, I'm going to stop reading before I have to say that. Um, I, I love that that's the way Jesus preached. Cause I think a lot of us, like if you took a preaching class in seminary or like it, depending on what tradition you're part of, your professor might say, well, wait a minute. Why'd you stop reading right there? So I like that Jesus gives us a little bit of license to, to do that. The other, the other kind of side of this is the, the civic side of it. Now, again, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but uh, the way things work in Canada and the way they work in the U.S. is is slightly different. Um, and we are likely to face um, at least some time, if, if the Democrats win control of the presidency and the Senate um, and are able to expand the court um, and, you know, God willing, but... In the meantime, we are likely to have a extremely rigid right-wing sort of fundamentalist Catholic <laughs> uh, Supreme Court yeah. um, who are who are certainly going to overturn Roe versus Wade and certainly um, going to expand so-called uh, religious liberty. Yeah. And one of the things that is often argued in America is that the ability to do that is part of what sort of protects people's rights. In other words, um, a church can fire you for whatever reason, because that is a protection of religious freedom. Um, and and to some extent, like, you know, you, you can kind of see the good side of that and the bad side. Like, it, there, when, for instance, we passed marriage equality, when, when, when the Supreme Court decided on that, um, you know, it doesn't mean that the Catholic Church has to has to marry yeah. you. Um but they can, right? Like if they if they so choose and progress forward that way. Yeah. So there's 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 something to be said on both sides of that. I think, right? The 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 government kind of deciding what religions mm-hmm. can and can't do, or um, the people sort of outside of religion, kind of pressuring religions to to come along and to um, catch up to 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 where we are. So that conflict is very much on the horizon. 
I just want to know what your thoughts are. I, and and I, it's a really open-ended question um, about where we are and wh- where this is going. And, you know, as, as people who still, you know, from the, from the civic side of it, uh, what we can and should do to, to, to advance this cause and, and prevent the kind of regression that we are sort of inevitably about to see. Yeah. I, I, I don't know where to like put that pen on the map in terms of like, here's where religious liberty ought to, have its limit and here's where individual liberty ought to kick in. Um, you know, it's not hard to speculate about, you know, where, where might religious liberty, if taken to its extreme form, like where might it lead us? And, and you know, I don't, I don't know how legit this is. I think, I think some of it's kind of manufactured, but you know, there were images being shared a couple of weeks ago of people who had this like, printed religious exemption that said i don't have to wear a mask in public <laughs> yeah that was fake um, <laughs> yeah thank goodness but what's real is that john MacArthur is is saying in california we're still going to meet in person we're going to worship in person right. you can't stop us and well as as a religious entity do you have the right to um undermine uh public health i don't know like if you go back to when um, evangelicals were like the number one uh, opponents of the civil rights movement, um, would it have been okay for evangelical Christians to say, well, you know what, you can pass the Civil Rights Act, but we believe, based on our reading of Genesis, that, that white people are at the top of the ladder and that anybody who's not white was created inferior and doesn't reflect the image of God as clearly as white people. And so we reserve the right as you know, white evangelical Christians to discriminate because that's our religion. You know, would that be okay? I I don't, I don't, I I think we would have to say no. Part of what I, as an American who potentially has like a a human rights case um, happening in Canada, Mm -hmm. my perspective is kind of like, well, you know, you shouldn't be made as a church to, to, you should kind of be able to discriminate. Um, for example, like, you you know, Roman Catholicism, you can't be a priest if you're a woman, but that's like one of the core tenets of the church, you know, pretty, you know, I think it's stupid, but, um, (laughs) it's one of the core tenets of the church. No, no woman would show up at a Roman Catholic church saying, okay, I'm here for the priest job. I just think that religious organizations that have those regressive social, um, convictions uh, ought to face consequences. You know, um, it, it, I, I think a lot of evangelical churches count on the public not knowing how homophobic and how transphobic they are. And and part of what I would like to see with any type of like religious liberty ruling or legislation or case is just more transparency. Like if you're a church that says all are welcome and a trans person shows up and that trans person wants to get baptized or wants to become a Bible study leader or wants to volunteer in the youth program. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you can't do that because you're trans. Well, then you've lied and and you're doing something that really is, I don't know if you can make it illegal, but it ought to be super shameful. And pretty much everybody in your neighborhood ought to think, you know, you're not an organization that, that decent people want to be connected to. 
Um, I think that there are a lot of good, kind, well-meaning, open and affirming people who go to homophobic, transphobic churches because the leadership is intentionally unclear. And uh, even if it's probably not realistic or right to legislate that churches have to hire gay ministers or, or trans ministers. There ought to be a way to make those churches like at least tell the truth or they ought to want to do it just because they're churches and, and making, right. I mean, you know, there's, there's a big Pentecostal church up here in Toronto and, and they recently, um, I think they did a preaching series based on the concept of slaying. And they used like, you know, slay, which is like a big, I'm not really up on uh, drag lingo, but like, you know, they were basically marketing themselves using uh, like imagery and, and phrasing that was like taken from RuPaul's Drag Race. Huh. So here's this conservative church that, that is homophobic and transphobic, marketing yeah. it, marketing itself like you know, as if it is not. Um, and that's, that's disgusting. That's insidious. Um, there, there's another big church, um, one of probably the biggest church in the Toronto area. And their pastor has said um, in the pulpit, you know, we're a conservative church. That is like, we don't believe that same sex weddings ought to be able to happen. But we want to love people so much that they think we're liberal. You know, basically, they're saying we want to lie to you. We want you to show up here in this place where we think there's something fundamentally broken about you, but we don't want to say that. You know, I hope homophobic churches and transphobic churches become so unviable that they all just die because people are ashamed to be associated with them. I, I want to see every single one of them dead. You know, it's like, sounds, I, if that sounds really intense, I mean, you have to realize, I was raised Southern Baptist, like Southern yeah. Baptist. Was they were founded as a white supremacist organization, like in the 1840s, a bunch of white pastors got together in Augusta and said, "We need a pro-slavery denomination." And what had to happen is that all the pro-slavery churches had to die or be transformed. And so I'll put it that way: I want all those homophobic churches, all those transphobic churches, to either die or be transformed. Before I let you go, it's been. Only three months now since since you you came out and where you stand right now, uh, both in terms of the the, the path forward and um, sort of you know in in reflecting on those three months, um, was it worth it? First of all, and um, what are your thoughts on the path forward for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I th I think it was definitely worth it. I hope that there were, you know, young closeted trans kids stuck in. You know, conservative religious homes or churches that saw my sermon and heard the message that I shared and realized that it's okay for them to be who they are. Um, I've heard from some parents of trans kids who seem to suggest that's happened. I've heard from some closeted trans clergy and like conservative churches that, you know, um, it's obvious that I've connected with, with people, maybe not like millions of people, but with some people. So I know that Based on like studies, West Virginia University did a study that found like the more if, if you're a if you're an LGBTQ kid, the more religious you are, the more likely you are to have suicidal ideation. So our churches are making queer kids want to kill themselves, and a lot of them are. And my thinking was, you know, if I can if I can get through to one of those kids, I can get through to one youth minister or or one 
uh, parent or one pastor, um, and there's one fewer kid that ends up being that awful statistic, then, then yeah. I mean, how can you regret doing that? I, I, I wanted to say things in that sermon that I really needed to hear a pastor say to me when I was that closeted 11-year-old trans kid. And I, I want to be modest and I want to be humble, but like people have said to me, you know, that sermon's going to save people's lives. And uh, I'm a little reluctant to accept that because it feels like a much bigger thing than, but, but, you know, maybe it's true and maybe it will. So that's one thing that I wanted to accomplish. The other thing I wanted to accomplish is I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to make good trouble the way John Lewis used to say. And <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah. There, were, there were people in my church who said, you know, ever since you've come out, like I haven't slept. And I'm like, good, good. How many, how many sleepless nights do you think I have? How many sleepless nights do you think the average trans person has when they think about whether or not they can be themselves and if they're going to lose their job? You know, our church, people in churches ought to be losing sleep thinking about important things. And what, what my coming out revealed to my church was that, you know, we haven't had a meaningful theological conversation about really anything in decades. You know, there were, there were people in my church that didn't think women should be pastors at all. And, you know, we're part of a denomination that's been ordaining women since the 40s. And it's just because we never talked about it. We just assumed, oh, you probably believe like me because we sit next to each other on the pew. When it turns out, there kind of were two different congregations. And the 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 prejudiced one was just a couple votes bigger than the open and affirming one. Some of the consequences have been a little hard to swallow. And mm-hmm. I, there's been a lot of grief. Um, but, yeah, I, I can't say that I regret it. Um, what are your thoughts on what you're going to do next? I mean, I, I, I get the sense that you're sort of still quite in limbo about that, but, um, what would you, what would you like to do? You know, one of the things that transition calls on you to do is take your body seriously. This innate sense within me that said, you know, you're, you're a girl, right? Um, that I just repressed and refused to take seriously for 30 years, like, you finally start listening to it and then you start to hear other things that your body is telling you. And um, one of the things my body is telling me is, you know, the church is probably the biggest source of trauma in your life. Hmm. So um, like the last time I was physically on a church property, which a couple of weeks ago, I started to feel really panicky. Like I started to have this like manifestation of dread on a, couple of occasions, people have reached out to me and said, hey, you should talk to our pastor search committee. We have an open pastor job and we would love to have somebody like you. And just the, the, the you know, there was a time in my life where that would have been the dream, you know, like you don't even really have to apply for a job. They want you to show up. And, and now I just think, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. And so like, there's some healing I think that needs to happen. It's hard for me to imagine doing anything else other than ministry. Right. And, and, um, a lot of folks have affirmed uh, that I have gifts for that, but um, sometimes that feels like as much of a curse as a blessing. I don't think I could ever just walk away from the church or walk away from faith. Um, I, you know, there are times that I've gotten a little envious of my atheist trans friends, but <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not. I'm not there. I just can't give it up, and and yeah. I, I do feel called into something like ministry. It's just, regardless of how like progressive your congregation is, there's still some probably nasty personality politics and um, stuff going on that, that can eat you alive. Um, And so it's hard for me to 
want to jump back into that. I think I just need some time to heal. Yeah. You know, one of my best friends started the GoFundMe um, that folks have been given generously to, and it's kind of helped create a little bit of a cushion so I don't have to jump right back into uh, like a job that I don't feel connected to. I don't have to make my next decisions based on like financial desperation. I can do it out of an authentic sense of vocation. Would you like to tell people where to find you online? Well, the best place to get me is my website, yep. uh, pastorjune.com. And if you go to that site, you can link to my social media. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. <laughs> Sometimes, um, you know, I actually have two Twitter accounts and, and I, I don't know, that's not super manageable, but it's the way it is. And, um, <laughs> Uh, one of them is a little bit more personal and professional. Well, one of them is a little more professional. One of them is a little more personal, but I'm at like beloved June is my personal one. And, and J.R. Joplin is my professional one. Um, my YouTube channel, any, pretty much anytime I preach, um, I live stream it to YouTube. So like if I'm preaching at, I don't know if I'm, if I'm preaching at like Woodbine Heights Baptist church in Toronto, which I did a couple of weeks ago, like in, if, if you want to, and they have this on their website, you can go and like go to the worship service or you can just watch the sermon by itself on my YouTube channel, um, either live streamed or afterwards. Um, but yeah, that's pastorjune.com is where to find me. And um, I hope fo- folks will come looking. Uh, well, Pastor June, thank you for taking this time and also just thank you for you. Uh, and keep up the fight and keep up the great work. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been really delightful talking to you today. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to that home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. If you'd like to help support Pastor June, there's a link to her GoFundMe campaign in today's show description. If you want to support the show further, please go to patreon.com slash hard to believe.